Welcome everyone and hello to all of you. And I hope you're all doing well, staying well, staying safe and doing the best you can to make a difference in everything that's going on nowadays in your personal lives and also in your professional lives, in your small family and the entire world. Because without purposeful intention of our daily life, it seems like it's not going to be much fun. So let me just make sure I hear a little noise. So let me make sure that uh, we can have a better quality of audio. So thank you. And today I am very excited that I have finally Professor Norman Fenton is able to be with us. You know, he's also one of those very busy people and who but needed to be in our presence. So from what I know with Dr. Professor Norman Menton is that he is a retired full professor of uh, at Queen Mary University of London, and he retired in December 2022. And he is also a director of Agena, a company that specializes in artificial intelligence and Bayesian probabilistic reasoning. So he's a mathematician with training with current focus on quantifying risk and uncertainty using causal probabilistic models that combine data and knowledge. So you could, that's also something that you could uh, look into what his expertise is and why I have him for today. And he has published many books as like seven books and over 400 peer reviewed articles. And he is also has works that covers multiple domains, including law and forensics and health, of course. And lately, he's been focusing his conversation with many of the truth, freedom leaders and uh, researchers and scientists who most some of them have been with us. And so he's been having conversations with them. So, Norman, thank you so much. And then. Thank you again. I know we all have our family situation, but here we are. And to all of you out there who's been following us, please remember to share, okay? Share, 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 and also get something that resonates to you most and do something about that because we don't want just your intelligence to get stuck in your own body or mental thought and not being able to share it to other people because it's all about sharing what needs to be done. So Norman, thank you and welcome. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Yes, <laughs> yes. Okay, there. Um, now there, my wife's come in. <laughs> Just as I said, we might be interrupted. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. We welcome everyone on the screen, whether it be um, your partner, your wife, your children, even pets. Come, <laughs> come on the screen. Yes. You know. So Norman, um, you've been so in, you know, invested in your career. And yet you're very dedicated in doing what you're doing now, especially in helping in, in the COVID, let's say COVID lies or not buying the narrative. So what I guess what I wanted to know is what is it that drove you to truly be inspired on you know, what you're doing now? Because you could just kind of settle down and maybe just focus in taking care of your family. But here you are making the most of every moment. So just let let our audience know more about you. Yeah, so um, I guess you could say I had a sort of a fairly 
reasonably prestigious career, but it all up until 2020. And that's when I started to um, look at the data surrounding the sort of COVID risk, because that was where, I, you know, a lot of my research had been in risk assessment for kind of like chronic medical conditions in recent years. That was a particular focus, actually, of our work. And I was leading actually quite a large uh, collaborative project, which was looking at risk of uh, chronic various chronic diseases. We were working with kind of like clinical specialists in different domains like diabetes, um, chronic heart failure, multiple sclerosis, uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So that was the kind of work we were doing anyway. So COVID came along and it was inevitable that, you know, I would kind of look at, be asked to, you know, look at the, the data. And the problem was that I saw, I realized straight away that a lot of the, um, the official narrative, which was being driven by data um, was actually flawed. It was a lot of it was was based on flawed mathematical models, flawed definitions of what constituted, of course, a COVID case. It was all driven by this, you know, positive PCR test. And we knew straight away that there were problems with that. We knew that the, there was a, you know, a lot of false positives, far more than people uh, ever imagined, especially when they started to test asymptomatic people. So I started to um, yeah, I started to uh, speak out on this because I was concerned that the, um, the the narrative was was framed wrong. People were um, being kind of like misled into the, the seriousness of the problem, and there wasn't any. You know, people weren't looking at you know the uh, alternative. There was no. Everything was driven. There was no. Basically, they changed the rules on how they dealt with things like bacterial pneumonia, which actually a lot of people early on. They were dying. They were being classified as COVID deaths, but a lot of these were uh, after they had the virus, they were getting bacterial pneumonia, and they weren't being treated with the normal combination, for example, of antibiotics. So a lot of the deaths were kind of unnecessary. They were classified as COVID deaths. You got all of that, and I felt I had to speak out because very few people were speaking out. I couldn't understand why people who should have known better were buying into what was obviously a flawed narrative driven by these flawed mathematical models and and um, and data yeah and i i i hear you and we're really grateful for you know individuals like you who have such prestigious background and then speak up because that also is spoil that kind of like uh, it does a ripple effect for others to be able to speak up and not be fearful when you discuss that um, in some in your presentation about the five stages of academic censorship by the biopharmaceutical yeah. complex, was that like is that when you did that, is that yeah. something that you just oh, knew lately, or you've oh, known it all? Those stages, even before those stages, I'm going to say. So I started off as I had this prestigious career. I was very well respected. I was considered to be you know, sort of a world-leading expert in probabilistic risk assessment. And yet, as soon as I started to, to question the official narrative, not right at the beginning, because at the beginning, we were able to get papers published, which weren't, which were like, not really challenging the narrative. We were, we did raise concerns. We did have a papers published about where we were saying that the infection, the, you know, the fatality rate they were claiming was, we was, we showed it was not as high as it was, but that was, that wasn't going to sort of, particularly controversial but it was when i started raising the question about actually that the number of that the fact that the case numbers that were being 
uh, no, these exponentially increasing case numbers in, in particular the summer and autumn of 2020, the so-called second wave. I knew that second wave was driven by the basically the PCR test and that was not a real second wave. As soon as I started to raise those kinds of questions, and that was challenging the narrative. Suddenly I was called a conspiracy theorist. I was called a rabid misinformation merchant and I was basically canceled. And all of my academic colleagues, or almost all of my academic previous academic colleagues, uh, you know, wouldn't speak to me or wouldn't didn't want to be on papers with me or research projects. And that was the point at which we no longer could get any of our papers uh, properly. Well, we couldn't get them accepted. And the five stages after that, after the so stages after being effectively cancelled by colleagues and having, for example, my invited lectures cancelled, even at my own university. Then came the, the censorship of the papers and the five stages, I think, yeah, were that initially we were getting papers reviewed and quite favourably reviewed. But then the editors would find, and it was kind of like the point of acceptance, and the editors would find new reviewers who would find reasons to reject the paper. So that was the first stage. The second stage was when they, um, they, they actually didn't even send the editors wouldn't send the papers out for review, but they would find a reason for not sending it out to review. So they would say, oh, it's not of sufficient interest or not of sufficient quality or something like that. Then after that, the stage was they didn't, the, edit, the editors didn't even give a reason, didn't, didn't even make out that they'd even read the paper themselves before rejecting it. They would just say, oh, it's out of scope. No, no reason at all. And then uh, following that, of course, we couldn't then submit anymore to the peer-reviewed journal. So we, of course, started to get the, um, uh, publish them in, in preprint servers, which any, and as long as it's not paper, as long as it's not plagiarized, as long as it's not um, uh, blasphemous, whatever, it just goes through a standard algorithm check. It gets, it puts, gets put on these servers, but no, it was getting rejected by these, they were finding reasons to not allow us to put it on these, on the standard preprint servers like MedArchive, an archive. We ended up, the only place we could put it was on uh, ResearchGate. Um, so just one place we were able to get it, but that doesn't get you like a, a recognized DOI numbers. It's hard to reference. You know, it's very hard to reference that. And then the final stage is they started to come after us after papers that had already been published, which weren't even about COVID, which is nothing about COVID, simply to try and discredit us. They were finding reasons. They were raising people were like, contacting the editors of papers that I had except that were actually already published in journals, which were not related to COVID, right? And they were saying this paper should be retracted because Fenton didn't, didn't declare these conflicts of interest. He's a member of Heart, he's a member of Panda. It's all nonsense. I actually was never a member of Panda. Um, I am a member of Heart, but I had absolutely nothing to do with the content of these papers. So there was no need to declare that. It was irrelevant anyway. And this was what happened. And and I, I did some investigation. So, for example, we had a, a letter we submitted in response to a paper that had been, appeared in the Lancet in May 2021. It was a very important paper because it was the first big paper, the first paper which had the population-wide study of the Pfizer vaccine, in, which was more or less covered most of the population of Israel. And... That was claiming this 95% efficacy 
right, for the Pfizer vaccine. And we looked at that study and we knew there were so many flaws in it for all of the reasons which we were raising about a lot of these studies, but all of the, there were so many flaws in that study. And we sent a, a rapid response letter to the Lancet, it, there's something like the 10th of May in 2021. And although we got a holding response saying they sent the letter, they said, oh, we're gonna send the letter on to the authors and get them to reply before we publish it. They never did, we kept asking. We find, you know, when we finally got a response to that letter, the, the response came in um, January, January the 8th, 2023. So what was it, 18, 19 months later. And the letter said, oh, well, we contacted the, the main author, it was called Sharon Alroy Price, and she didn't respond, therefore we've decided not to publish your letter. It was only a 250 word letter raising these concerns. So I put, I, I was so shocked by this response. I put it on my Twitter, my Twitter feed and it got over and within 20, within 12 hours, it got a million views, a million impressions. And without prompting the next day, I got an unprompted uh, email from the, uh, the editor of the Lancet or the, who first, the person who communicated in the first place saying, ah, well, Actually, with, with second thoughts, we think we, we, we treated you very badly over this letter. Um, therefore, we invite you to, to um, uh, resubmit it and we'll, re and we'll resubmit it or an update and we'll publish it. So I thought it's fantastic. That's a result. So we did that, submitted that we wrote, we rewrote the letter, just updated it because we updated it to show that there were new things like this Sharon Alroy Price, one of the authors, she hadn't declared her interest with Pfizer. There were, we already knew because they'd already declared eight of the 15 authors of the paper were stockholders or shareholders with Pfizer, right? But that was declared, that had been declared. That's not a problem. Of course, it does compromise the study, but that had been declared. But she never declared her interest. And yet she was the liaison, she was the key liaison appointed by the Israel Ministry of Health, the liaison person with Pfizer. She was actually officially in charge of the collaboration with Pfizer. She never declared that. Right. She was like made out. She was some sort of independent researcher, which, of course, she wasn't. So I just put, added that. We just added that point, which was a key point. So resubmitted the letter. Within two hours, I got a response saying, actually, we decided that we're not going to publish the letter after all. So <laughs> at this point, I decided this is so bizarre. I'm going to submit a freedom of a freedom of access information request to the Elsevier who own the Lancet. And I did that and I got back eventually a nine page PDF, which was massively redacted, but it had enough information text in there, which was not redacted to show, to confirm that they were never intending to publish a letter and that the reason they weren't is because they were talking about, they were saying, ah, this guy is a spreader of misinformation. He's a vaccine denier and, oh, we're not sure of his credibility. And, and so they were rejecting it, not on the basis of the content of the letter and its critique of the paper, but simply because of who I was. So yeah, that's that's the this just gives you an indication of the and this is only this is only the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's been, you know, we've had all the other kind of indirect censorship where people you know um, uh, complaining to Queen Mary University and then not being me not being supported on that and yeah, this is this is what we're you know this is what yeah. we're up against. Yeah. Also, we get the uh, the UK. Department of Defense have got this 77th Brigade. It's actually a part of the British Army who have basically since the COVID era 
have actually devoted their attention to basically monitoring people like myself, anybody who's questioning the sort of COVID narrative online and then whipping up these Twitter storms against us and, yeah, and calling us, you know, putting out all these stories about uh, that, that we're not, you know, that we're just uh, basically conspiracy theorists. Yeah, that's really a shame. And it's uh, we, it's very obvious that there's always a nefarious agenda because from the very beginning, if they really wanted to, to share it, they would have done it. And it's just interesting that they also use artificial intelligence in kind of like making that decision. How is that? Uh, what's your thought on that? Because I know you are also, um, uh, you specialize in artificial intelligence. Yeah. Is that really worth it? I think the the use of AI, in particular in looking for um, so-called disinformation, is actually a very dangerous thing, and it's an inc incredibly big thing at the moment. So, for example, a lot of the research funding in for so-called AI in the UK is actually being spent on what I call clever sort of clever algorithms and techniques for basically censoring people. And this is a terrible way to go because AI, you know, AI should be used, you think, to, you know, for the benefit of humanity, not to set, not to be used for these nefarious means. It's it's an it's an enormous endeavor. They you can't believe how much uh, research and how many researchers are using it for this, you know, sort of you know, intelligent detection of misinformation, which as I say comes down to basically intelligent ways of censoring people. It's frightening. Right. And and that's why I think one of the best moves that some some of you, I include you as those with very prestigious background, is that also like a, a, a publication or a website or an organization is there to publish the ones that are being rejected. And and I that's when Substack is very helpful. Yeah. And my my and this one before I pass pass it pass the conversation to Roy. Have you heard about Dr. Denny Rancour? Well, his work, right? Because uh, he's also a mathematician and he's awesome also when he did that all-cause mortality, which uh, one of the conclusions that he did is that there's no pandemic if none of these other things happened, which we know like the, the, the lockdown is, and also especially the mandates for the, you know, the 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 job the jabs. Okay, <laughs> let's not say the words because so, you know Roy and I have been taken down. Our YouTube have been down for a long time already. Yeah. But anyway, so we continue. So what do you think? Was there really a pandemic, or was it all just planned for something else? And I'll pass it on to Roy. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here. So, sorry, you asking Roy or me this one? No, I'm asking you. Then Roy will take over. Oh, okay. Um, oh, Dennis Rankle. Yeah, he's he's done some phenomenal work. I mean, our own research also showed that the whereas we look especially at the UK data, he's looked at other data as well, and, the, and in particular American data is the, and the analysis, the recent analysis done there is, is is very impressive for showing that. But we saw straight away from the UK data that 
despite what they were they were claiming they were claiming the data was showing that the um that there was the the the, the vax the vax the jabs were uh had benefits over risk i.e. they were they were leading to a decrease in all cause mortality but we saw straight away that wasn't the case the data was what we actually saw were these peaks in all cause mortality that were occurring shortly after vaccination in each of the different age groups and what's more, they were claiming those peaks were unvaccinated people. Well, it turned out when you looked at it, um, they were, according to them, peaks in unvaccinated uh, people, but they were peaks in non-COVID mortality. They weren't dying of COVID. These people weren't dying of COVID, right? The, the ones who were unvaccinated were apparently at the point where the vaccine's being rolled out to its maximum in that age group. Suddenly they're dying of things other than COVID. Well, well what the hell, how is that possible? Okay, well, whereas the people, this is enough, the people who've had the vaccination, according to them, suddenly are having a lower all-cause mortality for non-COVID deaths. So suddenly the vaccine is saving them from dying of cancer or, or heart conditions. So this simply proved, this simply proved what we already knew, that they were misclassifying people dying shortly after the vaccination as unvaccinated, right? We've got lots of evidence for that. So this was all a bit of a, you know, this was all a bit of a scam. And all of the recent data now is all pointing, even with all of their biases, is pointing to this conclusion that the all-cause mortality is higher in the vaccinated than the unvaccinated. And incidentally, Dennis Rankle, I said that we were able to, the one place we were able to publish our stuff was on ResearchGate. Do you know that Dennis Rankle actually got banned from even from ResearchGate? He's not allowed even to publish there. Hi, Norman. Hi. Hi, Roy. So with all these uh, journals that you've been, you know, publishing 400 plus articles over the years, have you ever kind of researched who's running them, who's owning them, who's funding them, who's, who's the, you know, pulling the strings at the top? The thing is, most of my um, uh, publications are not in medical, have not been in medical journals. It's only in recent years where we've been focusing on medical risk as they have these different chronic conditions that we have been publishing in uh, medical journals. And they're mainly the sort of the medical AI and medicine journals that have a link to, so it's, med, it's sort of medicine and AI or medicine and health, whatever. So it's it's not been the traditional straight medical journals like the Lancet or New England Journal. That's not our, that's not our target uh, journal, right? But as I say, increasingly, we know those journals are capped. We now know, you know, from the COVID era, how captured those journals are. The Lancet, the New England Journal, you know, they are, if you manage to get the very, very tiny number of papers that have got through to sort of a properly peer-reviewed journal, one of these medical journals, they've, they've been viciously attacked and they've tried to have them uh, uh, retracted. So, for example, uh, Mark Skidmore had uh, a paper, well, I can't remember which, which journal it was, but he, his was the paper which, which estimated he did this survey and it, which was quite an interesting survey based on asking people who, uh, without any prejudice beforehand about how many, what people they knew who, who died of COVID and died of vaccines. And he, he used that uh, to come to the conclusion that there were something like 270,000 deaths in, the, in, in America based on the number of COVID deaths that were officially classified as COVID deaths. So 270,000 deaths from uh, the vaccination. And of course, what happened? His paper suddenly got attacked, and 
on fairly spurious grounds because he addressed all of the concerns, all of the primary concerns about the limitations of his survey. But bang, that paper's been retracted. In fact, the only one there's a, there was this other paper by um, Joe Freeman and Peter Doshi were two of the there were several authors, but which was published in well, again, I can't remember where was it in the again, it was in quite a prestigious journal. That was the one that looked at the Pfizer and Moderna trial data. So they looked at the actual um, randomized control trial safety data from Pfizer and Moderna. And that was the one where they made they came to the conclusion that there was something like a one in one in 800 uh, doses of the, uh, of the of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were causing serious adverse reactions over and above what you know would normally uh, uh, be caused by uh, uh, non-COVID vaccines, right? And of course, that paper is now being attacked, right? And of course, and and basically, no no doubt people are trying to get get that paper uh, retracted. So, the the tiny number of papers that manage to get through that that um, do challenge the narrative, you know, end up getting either retracted or taken down. But virtually everything, you look at the the Lancet in particular. I mean, and the beer and the British Medical Journal. They just they are having any they are actually having these editorials written by people who are clearly funded by the pharma companies, if they're basically pushing the idea, you know, pushing the jabs. And it's it's incredible. These are not these are not credible, they're no longer credible academic journals. They're simply they're propaganda, they're basically propaganda sheets now. And speaking of propaganda, like the BBC, I saw a video that you had done about unvaccinated documentary. Mm. So you might just talk on that because that was uh, very interesting. Oh, this was an incredible thing because they had um, the BBC did this, you know, very, very lavish, you know, documentary. It was hosted by uh, Hannah Fry, who's got a very high profile. She's a sort of a mathematician turned sort of, you know, sort of BBC um, documentary presenter on all things science. Um, and they basically got seven people unvaccinated people so-called members of the public although that's another issue about just how much they represented members of the public who are unvaccinated and the idea was to get them in a house for a week subject them you know to sort of <laughs> the bbc propaganda on why the vaccines were good but also so they were supposed to examine all of the evidence because they only had pro jab uh propaganda shoved at them and then at the end of the week offer them the vaccination and expect some of them you know to to be decide to get vaccinated interesting none of them none of them agreed to get vaccinated at the end of the week but that's a separate issue but the pro the program became a simple propaganda piece for for fire you know pfizer in particular um because they had people who were basically funded by pfizer make basically present this so-called pro-vax you know uh, arguments there without even declaring the they didn't even declare the interest right and they were basically pumping out a whole bunch of lies including incidentally they basically tried to make out that there was only at that point it was may 2022 there was only eight percent of the uk adult population was unvaccinated they tried to make them out to be some crazy fringe minority you know it's the othering it's the othering of the unvaccinated these crazy people and these seven people in the house were sort of representative of these crazy uh, tiny minority but actually even their own, even the survey reference, and we knew from other data that the true uh, adult unvaccinated population at that point was over twenty percent. So that in itself was a was a 
an unbelievable misleading uh, part of the narrative to create this idea that there's only a tiny fringe minority, but there was actually a much more substantial, it was still a minority, but a much more sub substantial minority. And they weren't all, they couldn't call them all crazy. So you had that. But it, you, know, you had, I could give you so many countries, but I'll pick on one point in particular, because we've done actually, we've done some even more research on this. They had a doctor from uh, it's Lewisham Hospital, or whatever, I can't remember exactly, but they had this very dramatic scene where they take the they take these uh, the unvaccinated people into this hospital where this doctor comes out and he's telling them the following. He says, in the winter of 2021-22, we had all of it. He said 20 out of 21 of the COVID um, uh, patients, of our COVID patients who were in ICU were unvaccinated. And eight of those who died they were all unvaccinated. So 95% of patients, of COVID patients in ICU were unvaccinated and 100% of the COVID patients who died were unvaccinated. Now we already knew that that couldn't possibly be true because we were, we were following, we knew for example, at the time that all that, all that unbelievable um, narrative about the unvaccinated being, you know, take out all the hospital beds and they were all the COVID patients, it was all driven by flawed data because they were, for example, counting as unvaccinated anybody at that point who wasn't who had didn't have their booster in the UK. So actually, almost nobody at that point had a booster. So by definition, everybody was going to be unvaccinated. But it was even worse than that because the the hospitals, those who were keeping records, right? If a, if they didn't have a local record of the patient being vaccinated within their hospital trust, they were just putting them down as unvaccinated. So a lot of them actually were vaccinated, but they were just being classified as unvaccinated. So we knew all that, right? So we knew this couldn't be true. So I wrote to the BBC and it got to the highest sort of level of the complaints. And, I, and so whoever, I can't remember it is, the BBC top, top board of the BBC complaints, um, he tried to address these points. And he said that, they, and what, here's what he said about that claim. He said, we've contacted Dr. Patel and the hospital. And here's the story. It turns out, that Dr. Patel, that base data was based on his own personal records, whatever that means. And the hospital trust, the hospital said, we do not keep any records of the vaccination status of the patients. So in other words, he basically made it up. Okay. And they've not issued an apology about that. Um, and We've actually found out since that that guy wrote a paper, had a paper published on this data. And you can see from the paper, actually, you know, the, we're, we're actually going to do something. I only found this out yesterday, how much basically there's, there's so much wrong with that paper. But, you know, so papers like that, which really should be retracted, you know, are still out there pumping what are essentially lies. And the problem is the amount of people that regurgitate that to then yeah. encourage other people to get the job. It's 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 exactly. Uh, it's actually and, it's incredible yeah yeah and like with the flu then because it looked like the flu went on vacation if you look at the stats for yeah. the flu have you reviewed that yeah. yourself over the years We've done that. our substack if you look at our substack which is where are the numbers uh substack.com we've been pumping out i mean my colleague professor martin neil in particular has been on on top of this we've been pumping out loads of reveals about that how they manipulated the different uh flu reporting systems suddenly got changed 
And that's why flu kind of like disappeared in 2020, 21. So it's clear that a lot of the, you know, the flus and pneumonia were just being automatically classified as COVID. I mean, well, you know, I mean, this whole thing about everybody within a, a 28 days of a, you know, anybody, sorry, you know, anybody PCR positive, you know, within 28 days of you know, hospital, well, they're all classified as COVID cases, but even if you're dying within 28 days, it's a you know, COVID death and all of that. But, but it's, you know, so many asymptomatic people as well got, got, uh, classified as COVID cases, and they, they there was never anything wrong with them at all. But but the flu in particular, so many people who, you know, I mean, I'm not saying there was no no unique. Uh, I mean, I know there are people who claim that there was no uh, novel virus. Um, I, I'm not saying that. I think there probably I think there was there, there was, but it was not neither deadly. It was not much deadlier than the flu, and a lot of the cases which were classified as COVID were just were almost certainly just the flu. And with the, like with the PCRs, then because that's from an early stage, I saw they were selling billions of PCR tests in 2017 and 2018. And hmm. through the Freedom of Information, through Ireland, I think the UK as well, there was a few countries they basically said they can't isolate COVID. So it's like the PCR was a lie as well, kind of you know. And I've seen some shows where they were <laughs> in, charging money to get the PCRs and just dumping them in the bin. I mean, you can see I'm in a, see, this is what I mean, so my, my wife has a condition. A no, 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 not now, yeah. Yeah, it's right. Yeah, thank you. That's. So, yeah. so with the, like, the, 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 the PCRs then, I mean, it looks like to me that one COVID can't be isolated and the whole thing was pre-organized. And I mean, I think it's a HECO showing that yeah. you connect with as well. He was even predicting, you know, he knew this was all going to, to be happening. Yeah, he's, he's, he says he says that he he um, was on record as uh, as predicting exactly what what they were going to do with with this plan. You know, he calls it the pandemic. And so I, I I I'm actually I haven't seen. I'm trying to get get the evidence. I mean, I did interview him at the weekend, and he, and what he says is incredibly uh, interesting. Um, and um, he does seem to have a lot of evidence to to, to support the idea. That, that much of this was planned. I haven't actually seen the evidence of him saying it, as he said in 2019, but that's probably because all of, he's been unbelievably censored. All videos of him have been just wiped from the internet. It's, it's really, really curious that, you know, I mean, okay, we've all been censored. I mean, I can't say anything about the, anything I say about the uh, vaccine safety on, on YouTube immediately is taken down. Or, um, so I never put the vaccine safety stuff on the YouTube, but nevertheless, there are plenty of other people saying kind of like similar things to him but maybe not as incisive that, that is allowed up but for some reason his is nowhere his get taken down even all of the stuff about his arrest in london the news items that's that you can't find that's all gone from everywhere it's unbelievable because he got arrested in london in um i remember it he was actually and they took his phone and everything and i read from your blog, uh, substack yeah. that he never got his phone back which is never got his phone computer back he was held in solitary confinement for 22 hours and yeah, then released without charge. I mean, the only thing they apparently could get him for was was um, th this idea that you, of having a public meeting with more than thirty people without some prior police permission or something like that. Which is like crazy. That that's a one hundred pound fine. That's not that's not a solitary confinement, you know, job for twenty two hours. And handcuffed. He was handcuffed as well. You don't handcuff someone who's holding a meeting with more than thirty people without permission. And it was in it was out in 
you know, it's first in Trafalgar Square and then in Hyde Park, which is supposed to be where people are supposed to be allowed to speak freely without getting the permission to do so first. Exactly. And what's your thoughts on like, no, most governments are kind of giving power to the World Health Organization to kind of declare the next emergency. We know how corrupt that is, but like oh, for you to see that. It's so it's 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 so terrible. I mean, you know, if this is I mean, the WHO have been you know, disastrous all throughout. I mean, if, if that talking about the sort of the censorship, the official thing that always goes up, if you mention anything that uh, about the vaccines or anything about you know, that they don't like this challenging the official narrative on COVID. It gets taken down YouTube. It says the reason is because it goes against the WHO consensus or your local um, health authorities. But it's, 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 it says it's not, it's, it's, I think it's the words are so like, it's not consistent with the WH consensus on, 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 on COVID. So these people, I mean, it, it's a disgrace and it's getting worse. These, you know, the new, um, and it's, you know, it's not the not that original treaty, but it's the the new amendments, the the international whatever it's called, the 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 amendments to it, which are going to basically remove sovereignty. It's just removing, you know, national sovereignty. It's going to put the decision making for declaring the sort of. It doesn't even have to be a, doesn't even have to be a health pandemic. They can do it. You know, they can do it if they decide that it's a misinformation um, uh, disaster, something like that. You know, there's too much misinformation out there. We'll declare. You know, the, the WHO is now basically going to con take control of how you each, you know, sovereign nations handle this, right? And when you look at the people in the WHO, I mean, everybody knows about Tedros and his links to, you know, his sort of, let's say, his dodgy past and his links to the Chinese Communist Party. You've got all that. But it's not just that. The look at people who have recently been appointed to senior posts. We've got from the UK, there's Jeremy Farrar, who was the, you know, the Welcome Trust head who's been heavily implicated in so many of the issues concerned with, you know, the censorship and the whole pushing of the whole sort of flawed COVID narrative. You've got him. But then look at who is now, who's been put, who was last June, has been put in charge of the WHO Behavioural Insights team. It's this professor of um, uh, behavioural psychology at, uh, who was at UCL, this Professor Susan Mickey. I don't know if, you, if you've heard about her. So she is a communist. It's an openly, you know, she's been a communist kind of all her life, a multimillionaire communist, I may add. Um, you should look her up. And she, for example, was open. And you can see this. I actually put, uh, obviously not on YouTube, but a video on sort of on Twitter and on my sort of Rumble channels. You can see videos of her saying on national news that in 2021 that we needed to lock down forever. Those were exact words. She was asked, you know, how long should this last? And she said, laughingly, forever. And that, and she is now, and she was the person, incidentally, who was in the UK SAGE and the SPY committee, the ones who basically were in charge of the Project Fear. She was the one in, you know, leading that whole behavioral insights team, advising the UK government that they had to make people a lot more frightened. You know, they were saying, people aren't scared enough. We've got to, we've got to create novel ways of making them far more scared so that they actually abide by all these, you know, ridiculous um, um, social distancing, lockdown rules, and, of course, then also the, you know, adherence to and, and adoption of the vaccine. So there was all these psyops that, and they're good at it. That's part of this whole nudge thing. They, they know how to do it. They were very effective at it. She is now going to be in charge of that for the WHO if and when they decide that um, to declare the next 
you know, the next scare, the next health, it doesn't have to be health scare. Instead, it could even be a bio, it could be bio, um, it could be uh, something like a cybersecurity attack. That's also within the remit that they can, that the WHO could declare an emergency and that have us all locked down again. And people like Susan Mickey, communist, you know, uh, um, is going to be in charge of all that. Unbelievable. And just finally, before I pass it to Hartmut, with like your own kind of inner circle, and I mean, you know, you mentioned some of them kind of kind of cut ties with you but did people start waking up and do, also do you see any kind of success or wins or something that gives people a bit of hope look more people are waking up but there's no it's got nowhere near to the point of that the sort of the breakthrough point and what's more as people as people more people are waking up particularly with it's pretty pretty difficult i mean they they haven't been able to hide the lack of efficacy of the vaccines because nobody knows everybody knows multiple vaccinated people who keep getting COVID. nobody knows uh, unvaccinated people who've had COVID who are getting it multiple times so they know nobody can hide that this but they're still they're still doubling down on ah but the covid's you know that the vaccine still stop you dying of covid and that's a, but increasingly even people on that there's there's more has come out little bits are being leaked out on 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 sort of vaccine deaths which have been certified for the coroners. Of course, they only certify a tiny minority of those, but at least those get reported. So there's a little bit of that. But at the same time, I think the mainstream media and the journals and all of that, that stuff and academia, I think they're doubling down. I think that they're making they're, they're they're actually being they're actually even more censorship of people like myself to stop the stop the message getting out. So I think there is a doubling down. And because they're worried, they're worried that, that, that I say that, that there were people becoming a, you know, more alert because of the obvious failure of the vaccine with respect to efficacy. Um, but that's the thing. So, um, yeah, so that, and, and the other thing is that there's lots of legal. I mean, I've been involved in lots of I've done sort of affidavits for loads of different legal cases. I, I don't see none of them, as far as I can know, have been successful. Because I think that again, the they, they, they've not got just they, as in you know, sort of the WF, WHO, whoever's basically driving this whole thing, have control over academia, have control over the mainstream media, have control over the politicians. Uh, they also have control over the judiciary, yeah. right? So there's always some. You know, I was involved in a case like there was a the, the this case in um, uh, Indonesia where I did where it did get to the high, it did get to the Supreme Court. I did actually testify live, obviously not in person. We did it um, via a live stream there. And that was case was brought against the, um, the president of Indonesia and the head of their health ministry, right? And obviously they had lots of um, witnesses like on the science side like me, but they also had a lot of vaccine injured because um, it was against the vaccine mandates there. They had a lot of vaccine injured gone. And I think that they, my understanding was they made a really compelling case and the judges, it's all done by a committee of judges. The judges were very, very, they were quiet. They were certainly sympathetic to what I, I was saying. I was cross-examined, but it was fairly, they weren't able to kind of like challenge anything that I was saying. They um, were very sympathetic indeed to, to the vaccine injured who were who were testifying. And what happened? It got thrown out in the end on, a, on some technicality. They decided that for that particular type of claim, 
it hadn't been submitted it hadn't been submitted with the necessary time frame and i think this is just you're going to get this type of thing happen all this is what's happening all these kind so i don't hold out any hope for for this to be resolved through the law or through litigation right people who think these people are going to get sort of you know the 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 real sort of evil people behind this are going to get locked up as a result of court cases. No, it's, it's just it's just not going to happen. So I'm just not so quite sure I, how. I believe sovereignty and doing it through our own kind of, whether it's UCC, common law or something like that, where the people are doing it. But yeah, I, I know it's totally corrupt. Yeah. Listen, Norman, thank you very much. I really appreciate what you're doing and I'll pass it to Hartman. Professor Norman, thank you, for, thank you so much for being here. And... Um, I start directly with the media, because in a state which which functions normally, you have uh, the legislative level, the government, which creates the laws. You have the judiciary, which implements the law, for example, the Ministry of Justice. And you have the executive, who, yeah, to, who looks that the law is fulfilled in the, in the, in the, in the state. And then you have the publication, which normally shall show the truth in order to control the first three. And um, we can see it very simple. And I love this example in the military dictatorship from uh, Greece uh, from 1967 to uh, July 1974, after they tried to make a coup in Cyprus. So the, the journalists were much faster than the propaganda of, of the military dictatorship so that the people on the street get informed and that people didn't support the, the system anymore. And for example, uh, the European Union got a very bad reputation as the military dictatorship was not acceptable anymore in the European Union. And... At the moment, when I see how the media are controlled by other three uh, entities um, and implementing uh, also now AI for, for establishing the propaganda so that yeah. the people um, on the streets um, have, let's say it this way, um, Maybe they can listen to the information. Many don't, but if they listen, they also have a very security feeling, and they don't want to leave the security zone. And uh, this is a very, yeah, let's say, different, very difficult situation. Especially, for example, just for in Germany, and I think in European, in the UK, it is the same. In Germany, for example, we had 82 million people in the whole country. Hmm. 27 million people pay taxes by working and 12 million people are paid by the government so only 15 million people create new services create new products in order to and run the whole deal because yep. the other people to 12 million are paid by the money the other people make and I think in the, in the government in UK, I think the government part is also very very high. Yeah, it's similar. So, how do you see the possibility? Uh, again, the question like, right? How do you see the possibility that we can, let's say, turn the vessel in the right direction? 
Well, you've hit on some very, very good points there. The problem is that the more people who are dependent on the state, the more the they have to be basically subservient to it. And that's why I think that that's actually a key component driving the sort of the move towards the universal basic income. It's going to be the central bank digital currency. And, and the problem is, and this is it, that the fewer, the fewer kind of like free thinking people there are, the worse it is for this, um, if you like, the let's just call it the, the planned sort of new world order, because they actually use that term themselves. Um, and that new world order is all about basically having as many people dependent on the state as possible, because that's where they're controlled and that's where they can move towards the, you know, this whole sort of agenda. To, I mean, a lot of this, I mean, I've always said that the uh, the COVID lockdowns were sort of the precursor for the climate lockdowns, which is always part of the what was originally Agenda 21, Agenda 2030, and now the sort of the net zero 2050 objective. It's all moving uh, towards that idea of, of, of um, you know, global governance, the idea that individual sovereign countries can't be relied upon to democratically elect, you know, uh, sufficiently clever people to basically address all these global problems. Therefore, this global technocratic elite are the only ones really capable of doing that. And therefore, um, I, I'm very concerned about the fact that the, uh, the, the propagandizing of, as you sort of indicated, the, the, the kind of like the brainwashing and uh, and the, the media control of those who are dependent on on the are dependent on the government. It's going to be very difficult to break out of that. Even if they wanted to, they're not going to be for. I mean, once you're under digital control and you, you're dependent on the government for your universal uh, basic income, and we're going to move towards the sort of Chinese sort of social uh, credit scoring system, they're not going to be able to. They're not going to be able to. Um, uh, show any kind of dissent whatsoever. They're not going to be able to, you know, e even what they do and how they travel, where they go is going to be monitored with respect to whether they're conforming to the sort of these ridiculous uh, net zero targets. But it's also wrapped up in this whole idea of whether they're good citizens with respect to not questioning things like the, you know, lockdown uh, narratives and, and and stuff like that. So it's going to be, I this is a, it's a, it's a real problem because as you said, the, the, the only people for who it's in their interests, well, ultimately, we belong in everybody's best interest not to be dependent on the government. But when you are, once you are, once you have got those people totally dependent on the government, the, it's the only ones who's, in whose interest it is to challenge it. That, that, is, that minor, is that increasingly small minority of the of free thinkers who are you know, generating the genuine wealth? That's the problem. Yep, definitely. And especially as the most journalists, for example, they work for the main media, mainstream media, which is paid by yeah. the taxes, for example, or uh, let's say the newspapers, which are paid by the big companies, yeah. Pharma by advertisements and all that stuff. So there is there is no possibility to for the publication area to fulfill its task in front of the of the people no there isn't there is no hope we, we you know we've got i mean the little even the tiny little bits of uh, tiny openings that you get where you think that there's a there's someone in, on the sort of mainstream or close to the mainstream revealing it bang they come down so in the uk um they had this i don't know if you know we, we they 
there was this new news channel which is on the, which is on which anybody could pick up on a you know on a, on their TVs. So it's not it's not it's not a web. That we know there's lots of decent and very good web, uh, you know, uh, internet channels which are pumping out good news. But this is a proper news channel you could get on anybody could get on their TV called GB News. I don't know if you heard about it, but um, so it started um, sort of challenging the narrative. People like Nigel Farage. Some people say it's a bit sort of controlled opposition, but at least he's someone who kind of like speaks up. He wasn't speaking up against much against the, the COVID narrative, but he speaks up against things like censorship and the control of the EU and that sort of and the World Economic Forum. He would mention things like that. But then they had, um, as a regular, Mark Stein. Do you know who Mark Stein is? If you don't, you should look him up because this guy, you know, he, he is brilliant. And they had him on and he um was really started to um rate he had he was bringing on people who were vaccine injured and he was actually challenging the you know the official government statistics like we were he was raising the concerns kind of concerns that we were and really challenging the government narrative and what happens ofcom who are the british uh, regulator for um tv and radio um, uh, basically um, said, right, we're, we're, we find you guilty of breaching Ofcom rules, and he was booted off. You can still find him. He still has his sort of Mark Stein online, where he has a lot of, you know, people pay to subscribe, So, and he's still doing the same stuff there. He actually had a very, very serious heart attack. I, I mean, he'd been vaccinated as well. So he has, I'm not suggesting there was a direct link there, although maybe he's implied that, but, um, you know, he, he in fact, they actually sacked him from GB News, literally just when he was recovering from this very, very serious, uh, it was actually a double heart attack. So even the tiny, you know, so for once, a lot of people were actually being, were being woken up by him and bang, closed down just like that once he was reaching too many people. So it's just not going to, it's not going to happen. And all the good people, all the good people on GB News basically are now no longer there. You know, they, they have like Neil Oliver, who's, who's very good, he's, but he's down to one hour a week. And yeah, so there's, they're no longer really challenged. They're no longer. It's no longer, you know, what it was in terms of challenging that narrative. So it's, there is, you know, there's, you know, the normies are never going to find the normies are never going to find, you know, people like yourselves or us on on, um, you know, on the internet. It's only people sort of plugged into these sort of alternative narrative, as it were. So we're we're kind of like in an echo. It's an it's an echo chamber. It's very worrying. Echo. Sorry. We're kind of like in an echo chamber. Yeah, that's right. For example, um, the problem is also we had a podcast guest on our show, Rashid Boutin. Yeah, he passed away. Yeah, and he in his last interview he said that he guessed he is poisoned and that yeah. he will die. And for example, also yeah. in Germany we had uh, the very brilliant pathologist Arne Professor Arne Burkhardt. Wow. Yeah, and I want to ask you about that. So he, so he suddenly he died in this mysterious. So what's he the died, Yeah, okay. He was more than eighty years old. Maybe this is uh, now now an age where someone can. Uh, I don't know. You, know. you know what the story is now. That's the story is that yeah. he died trying to save his son who was drowned, disabled son who was drowning. You heard that? No. Oh yeah. So it's everything about this. Incidentally, there's a there's some. I'm gonna there's some um meeting online meeting where there's a um a kind of like a dedication to him uh tonight um where we might find out some more about this but 
he so for example so hiker um Schoening meant mentioned that he'd been with him the whole day before and yep. he was in perfectly good health and then all he heard was that suddenly he's dead the next day so he didn't know anything about this accident but it's come out on there are some people now saying on twitter that, that the official story is that he actually died uh it by trying to save his son it, it does say the family does say there was a message saying a tragic accident it says a tragic accident so i think the story about him trying to save his disabled son from uh drowning that seems to be the official line now i'm gonna we don't know we'll find out more but it's very very curious it's really curious yeah because uh he made a very brilliant um uh youtube video over one hour 12 days ago or 12 days before he died in which he explained the side effects of the jab also on the long term for example for 10 15 years yeah. and how it's how it's spread it for example through the eyes etc and um, 12 days later he is, is the video, are you saying that youtube still had the, allowed the video up yes the videos are still there yeah still. that's very interesting okay i heard but i haven't seen that yet i didn't know it was no, this is um, unfortunately it's in German, but it's it's oh, brilliant. That's why. Okay, yeah, it is brilliant, and he explains in detail how the side effects are. And he said one he can only present one he can only present one percent, but this one percent are also so scary he doesn't want to talk about the other ninety nine percent. Amazing, uh, yeah. And we have also um, the. And the problem what we have, for example, with the censorship is also, and especially with the AI right now, um, that the people get more and more in a comfort zone and have less courage to see the truth. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. I mean, the AI is directing them. Remember, it's, it's they, as I they, said, they, they, I can direct them completely in a different direction. You, you have no idea, I say, you have no idea how much government funding is being pumped into this particular type of AI. I mean, there's a, I won't, I don't want to get into the details of it, but just let's say I have some very, very sort of intimate knowledge of, of where and who is being funded and what kind of research they are doing. And, and, and big, big money is going into this, as I said, what turns out to be simply clever, the, it's, it's, it's clever AI, um, to basically censor and propagandize the population. And uh, and um, I had I must look in Instagram. I had one interesting post in which was stated that the AI can lie in order to get people do work for them. Yeah. yeah? So this is also a very important um, step. It doesn't instantly it doesn't have to be AI. It's an interesting that, that just what you've just said there reminds me of something which again is an indication of how, of how bizarre things have got. So the BBC, who I consider to be the biggest promoters of misinformation in the UK, they've been terrible throughout. They just they, they announced this new um this new project called BBC Verify, hosted by this woman called Mariana Spring, who's been this, I don't know if you heard about this, who's this uh uh, yeah, she's, I mean, she's, a, you know, has no idea about anything, but, but you know, it's just been up there to basically attack anybody. If, curious enough, only only from the, she's she's looking for, 
you know, conspiracy theorists who are pumping out anti-COVID, anti-vaccine narrative. Only, only they're obsessed with it coming from the right. They're not, they're not looking at left wing. It's only sort of the, they think it's all right wing. They call us all right wing uh, conspiracy theorists who are pumping this stuff. They're sort of obsessed by it. But she actually, when she was given the sort of the, tra they were doing this lavish trailer um, for this uh, new initiative. She actually said quite openly that she's been doing this um, investigation undercover now. And what she'd been doing. She had multiple Twitter, she was had multiple Twitter accounts impersonating different types of characters, right? So she herself has got multiple Twitter accounts of different types of characters, like a, a conspiracy theorist, uh, you know, someone, a naive person. All these she actually listed, she said, I think she listed five different um personas. Now, not only is that completely against that's completely against Twitter's terms of, of reps. You're not. You're not supposed to have, you know, you're not, of course, you're not supposed to have more than one account on Twitter, but it's completely against the BB. It's completely against everything, all of the ethics and everything. And and what makes it so one of the things that, that, that she's criticizing people for is, is she's saying she wants to stop. Or one of the things they absolutely want to stop is anonymous accounts online. That's one of their objectives. And she's using these anonymous fake accounts to try and basically frame you know, and, and monitor people like ourselves. Yep. This is the BBC and nobody bats an eyelid. Nobody, you know, this, how is this? In Germany, is... We dis in Germany was a discovery that the people who work in the mainstream media are uh, 90 to 95% left-wing orientated. Yeah, for, for sure. At least that here, it's probably 99% in the UK. Yeah, and this is, and for this reason, they have their their views. And the problem with these left wing people is uh, the purpose. Um, I don't know how the purpose heals the measures. Is that correct? I don't know the word. Uh, purpose heals them. So we, for example, if you want to do something and it's not correct, but you you're allowed to do it because the aim or the target is yeah. is a holy thing. It's all in the greater good, exactly. If you can do something, I mean, oh, don't tell, I can tell you so many things about number of times I've heard in different, whether it's in climate change or COVID, you know, people I would have expected better of say, ah, but effectively we have to lie for the greater good or we're doing this for the greater good. I mean, that is a, that's a, that's an unbelievably terrible thing. It's, but it's a, it's a leftist because it's the anti, it's the anti-individual individualization. It's this communitarian thing, which is all part of that, that sort of globalist agenda and of course they they think it's they it's all about they want to monitor misinformation of course who decides what's misinformation well it's anything that anything that they don't agree with is misinformation that's yes. it they define it they control it yes and then by controlling it for example by 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 only explaining the pros for the heating pumps or the pros for uh, eating insects for yeah. example, in Germany, they want to reduce the the, the, yeah, the meat, consumption. meat to one yep. gram or ten gram per day. Yep, yep, we've got that here. We got that here. The UK, in the UK as well, or not? Oh, the UK government, the UK, um, a massive UK uh, funded government funded project about net zero said, well, we need to actually have absolute zero, not net zero, and that means no meat or lamb at all by two thousand and fifty, and everything, all you know, all. Um, uh, use of energy, uh, all food, all food consumption, heating, everything, 
uh, travel all at, at, at no more than 60% of today's levels by 2050, no air travel at all by 2050, no shipping at all, because they say, well, we're not going to have, you want achieve net zero, we're not going to do that uh, without absolute zero, because we haven't got the technolo technology for the sort of large-scale carbon capture and removal. We haven't got the technology for non-fossil-fueled mass transportation systems. Therefore, we have to get rid of them altogether, right? And um, yeah, so we like that. Basically, what does it mean? It's either a sort of a more miserable, hungrier, um, uh, a colder population, or depopulation. How how else are you going to do it? It's one. It's one or the other. Yeah, but, yeah, but right. this is this is what, and they're all they're all and everything. That, I mean, the government can say, well, we're not. That's not strictly what we're committed to. But if you look at the everything out, the UK government is doing is moving along those lines. They're already trying to push people, as you say, into eating insects rather than beef and lamb. Um, they're already, you know, uh, basically um, uh, buying up farmland, you know, at uh, you know sort of terrible prices, and they're gonna again, try and move people into these the sort of the 15 minute city idea, which is all part of that agenda 21. It's all about globalist control and, you know, centralized. And again, moving towards the, you know, the, I mean, so the WHO we were talking about before that they, they, did you see Tedros announced yesterday that they're, they're basically signing up. They're sort of getting together with the, this EU scheme about the digital um, travel idea. It's basically all about a digital and international digital ID, which will have your, you know, vaccine record and stuff like that. So you won't, you know, soon you won't be out, in three years time, you won't be able to travel unless you've got your, uh, your vaccine, your evidence, your vaccines on your, what will be your digital ID, which you'll need to simply go and travel your, see your loved ones in other countries. Yeah. But um, let's see. Um, the only true, unless my hope is that the, the, the lies of the governments become so obvious. For example, now um, there was a Washington Post article in which was stated that uh, uh, the, the the European agency informed the European the German government about the uh, terror attack of the Ukrainians on the Nord Stream two, so that the people stop and say it's enough. I, this is this is the only way to do it concerning vaccination i think there was mm. it didn't work but now it goes to the money it goes to the houses it goes to the food and it goes uh, and the the lies will become so obvious that the people hopefully say one time enough, you enough. Hope, yeah you, you think you think that but uh, to be fair, I'm, I'd like I like to be optimistic, but yeah, I, I'm finding it a little bit difficult at the moment. I mean, the optimism. If I can actually end, because I need to go. But if we can leave, if I can leave on an optimistic note, I feel, um, despite everything that's happened, this whole the last three years has, has kind of. Like, I mean, I was a bit skeptical on a lot of things before, like the climate change stuff and other things. You know, I didn't believe what. You know, the government and the media were saying, but this has really waken, woken me up. It's woken up a lot of people. We're still in the minority, right? But I think that we have kind of formed a community of people, a great people I would never have met or I didn't know before. And I feel so much more comfortable with these people than I ever did with the people before who I've now found out weren't, you know, the people I really thought, you know, <laughs> imagined them to be. And and, and I find a much more of a kind of like a an empathy. And I, it's it's kind of like great. And you feel that you can, 
you know, even within our, you know, even within this, oh, it's a limited circle, we'd like it to be much bigger, but finding such, so many great, great people I've never met otherwise and feeding off each other with, with great ideas, you know, we might not yet be at the point of say nowhere near the breakthrough to others, but it, but that itself is a very, is a very, very good and positive, it's a very good and positive feeling. It's almost like, you know, you know, you feel that a weight has been lifted in some, in some respects. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Sir. Thank you so much, Professor Norman. It was my real pleasure and I pass it to Grace. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you again. And uh, yeah, we, it may sound like we're ending up in a not very hopeful note, but it just shows that, Norman, we need to have you again in the future. Yeah, <laughs> and I will. It won't be difficult to go get into that link, pardon me. But oh, yeah. so we just be in and in addition to what you're saying about the, the alternative news, like I learned about the BBC verify through um Vanessa Billy in her Substack through UK columns. So UK yeah. column news is one of my best. Oh research. yeah, they're great. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and that's the sad part of some of these people, independent journalists, or just even heads of like the National Endowment for Democracies. Some of them, I truly believe they just don't know who they're working for. So <laughs> eventually they have to catch up. So, and, so and, and all the other viewers who are still skeptical and cannot see it, eventually there's no other choice, but you'll be awakened at some point or another it may be hurtful but don't let it happen that you'll really be in such a dilemma that you, all your relatives or, or your loved ones will be part of the uh sacrificed okay yeah, yeah. so thank you norman do you want to say a little bit of how they can contact you or any project or any kind of collaboration that you want others to know Yes, I mean, people can uh, follow me on Twitter. I'm Prof N. Fenton. And on, we, I say, the Substack, which is where are the numbers, substack.com. Uh, it's a bit, I mean, I, people, I do invite people to, um, you know, a lot, lots of people do send me sort of data to analyse it. It can be a bit overwhelming because we're not, you know, there's only, you know, I work with Martin Neal and a couple of others. We haven't got any research students or anything like that. We're not got any funding. We're doing all of this in our own time. So just be patient with us we can't do we can't do everything if there are people who want to help doing some basic analysis of the data we come in them then that would be great to hear from such people because as i say that's just too much for it for us to do on our own thank you and uh yes um being connected with like one of the people who you really recommend or resonate, like I, we recommend you to be connected with Professor Norma Fenton, just leads you to more of like-minded people. And that's my experience and that's all our experience. So whatever you do, please share, please subscribe to any or all of our, you know, things that we do. Uh, Roy Hartmut, the Professor Norman, and he also interviews, Professor Norman also interviews, and so you'll you'll be in good hands, okay? Stay away from the mainstream too much. Once in a while, you take a peek, yeah. <laughs> you know, but protect your shield, and that's another thing that we need to know who we are 
as a people, as human beings. Do not forget that. Don't be like following all the other things that they say we are not. Take yeah. care and be well and stay well and source bless. And thank you again, Norman, Roy, and Hauptmut, and everyone. Okay, bye.